Welcome, everyone, to the Daredevil Podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy who always gets the hamaguri and double muzo dako when dining at Morimoto. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Matthew, I show you respect. It would be wise to return the courtesy. Daredevil, episode 109, Speak of the Devil, and he shall appear, is brought to you by Why the Hell Bother, Attorney at Law. Our new location now at the corner of Fifth, and who gives a crap? Order in the court! One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Our tease begins with a ninja in red robes popping the masked man right in the face and flipping with an emphatic hiyah. It is a red ninja, and he takes out a hooked spear on a chain and swings this around. Uh, the masked man throws one stick at it. It's flicked away. Masked man is cut on the forearm, the chest. Uh, he catches the object. He blocks with the other stick, which he loses, gets smacked into a table, the ground and he's down and suddenly uh he is thrown into the table and that's it i like that in a show that has had so many fights and i'm sure if you're a fight choreographer or if you know about martial arts you know you have all these subtleties and these uh different ways of fighting to call upon and different pacing and all of that uh, for those of us not versed in all of that, though, I love that this fight, y- you can still see how how the masked man is slightly losing the fight. He's getting sliced and battered, and then he'll kind of come back and get a couple shots in. But there's just kind of this overall feeling of momentum where, surprisingly to us, he's not doing well. And uh, I'll also add, Pete, I kind of like the irony here. It's somebody in a ridiculously red suit, shades of the movie, perhaps. I mean, here a bit more appropriate as the uh, the ninja garb and kind of meant for meant for a showdown, not meant for skulking in the shadows. And uh, certainly a an out of the blue and surprising teaser act. Of the episode proper begins with Matt Murdock sitting on a familiar bench outside the church. The priest we've seen him interact on two other occasions with comes over and tells him he was starting to wonder if he would ever turn up again. And Matt tells him that he's been busy. Um, But uh, if they go inside, he tells him that, uh, you know, he can take confession. Um, There's a sign, Matt, I noticed on the church. It says that the church is open for prayer and quiet, which is a little bit of an Easter egg for later on. And uh, Mm -hmm. Matt tells him that uh, he'd be interested in taking the priest up on that latte. Uh, There's a world weariness here that that, um, is suggested in this uh, outside portion of this this church section of the story, uh, and which we'll get into a little bit more in a bit. But I just I really dig this priest character. Um, like many uh, like many other minor characters in this show, which I assume are drawing from a from a New York cast, 
they kind of don't look Hollywood. They don't act Hollywood. And that almost makes it better. I mean, just the fact that this guy just kind of looks like, I don't know, he doesn't look like a priest exactly, but he just looks like a normal a, a normal guy and has this kind of, you know, no nonsense, like, oh, here you are. I was wondering what, what happened. It, there's just a little something extra here with this actor. Definitely. I can't help but feel I've seen him before. I haven't gone so far as to IMDB him just yet. This was the first episode we got a name to the character a little later on. It was never spoken. You saw it quickly on a subtitle when he went to speak, but we'll get to that. Um, inside, of course, as they're, uh, you know, having their foamy, frothy beverages, um, the priest reminds uh, Matt that people still remember his father battling Jack Murdoch around those parts. And, um, you know, Matt gets right to the guts of why he's there. Do you believe in the devil, father? And priest asks him, you mean as a concept? And Matt means this literally. Do you believe he exists? And we get this you know, all right, well, you, you want the long answer or the short answer? And we get the background of the priest in seminary and, and some of his uh, studies there. But then he launches into this uh, parabolesque, Matt, story of a man that he knew when he was working in Rwanda named Gahiji and such a respected person even among the uh, Tutsis and uh, the Hutu and that he was ordered to death and even the militia couldn't do it. So the commander came in and got to know him, uh, talked with him, and then he dragged him out into the center of the village and hacked him to death along with his entire family. So the priest comes to the thesis that I saw the devil that day. And the, the monologue here that actor Peter McRobbie, uh, gives just briefly interrupted by, uh, by Matt, uh, otherwise just this unbroken monologue. It, stops the rest of the of the series it stops the overall story in such a wonderful way because it just gets to the heart of the matter here that whatever name you want to put on the evil in this world whether it's you know from some some fallen angel whispering in our ears or whether it's just man's evil to man he's seen it and it's a reminder that it's out there and it's not just in rwanda in in you know horrible ethnic cleansing evil like that maybe not to that degree thank goodness but evil like that is among us in in our communities and specifically in in hell's kitchen and and in new york city and it's just it's 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 a show-stopping moment there and it's just so so wonderfully done and to you know preview this idea i mean listen speak of the devil we know this is going to be a a heavy you know persona episode for Matt. We know at the same time that Fisk has made inroads coming forward in the community and it's this scatological discussion to have grounded in the theology with a man of the cloth. We cut to uh, Karen 
uh, in the office with Ben and Foggy. And uh, they're talking about their King of Diamonds, and they know who he is now, having come forward. But Ben is very cautious. Having seen the news, he, you know, has them come to the realization that everything has changed here. There's a <clears throat> New York Bulletin uh, front page with the headline, Wilson Fisk's Promise uh, to City, A Better Tomorrow. And that he's gotten out in front of being dragged into the spotlight. So their strategy from earlier can no longer apply. And there's that great line there that Fisk has gone uh, on the Internet from, you know, Fisk's reputation on the Internet has gone from nothing to tons of three hanky stories about his difficult life. I have never heard the phrase three hanky stories or you know insert whatever number you want to to talk about how terribly terribly sad something is <laughs> and it was just like oh my goodness that i mean in that one sentence there's their problem he went from being the mystery man to somebody that everyone sympathizes with right and and we know the three hanky story um and not that it isn't something that would move you to tears, but at the same time, it's, it's couched in a brutality that, you know, we see play through in this episode. It's in this scene that we first get a meeting between Matt Murdock and Ben when he's not wearing a mask. He's introduced there. So brought into the confidence with Ben and we have everybody at Nelson and Murdock now working with the New York Bulletin reporter. But uh, there's great concern here if they go after him that there's going to be collateral damage for these people. Um, The tenement case comes up again. And, uh, you know, even Captain America, Matt Foggy says, he can say he's Captain America, but it doesn't put the wings on his head kind of timely this weekend (laughs) very timely although and i I don't know if i mentioned this in a previous podcast um because frankly listeners doing uh in the past week (laughs) doing two daredevils and agents of shield and an age of ultron uh, sounds like a a royal flush (laughs) absolutely um luckily we all came up winners but in i think this episode again it's a bit of a blur i apologize but in, in in somewhere in this 108 109 uh range of things there's a newspaper headline where i paused it and looked close and it makes reference to september something september 5th but september 2015 so i don't on the one hand i don't know how canon you want to call that on the flip side i'm now starting to work on a theory that um i mean first of all it's marvel so if they're going to stick any date in there and they had a sense of when it was going to come out whether it was spring or summer or fall the fact that they called it um called it september 2015 which would have been a full year after most of these episodes were made that seems a little intentionally in the future if it's for no reason so i'm just i'm just saying you know let's let's uh let's keep that in mind that this is um I mean, who knows? There are things that could happen. Um, they could be discussing things from Agents of, from Age of Ultron that happened, quote unquote, a few months ago, or they could be d- affected by things on Agents of Shield that we have yet to see, depending on how integrated they want to be with things. And as 
the substance of Ben's discussion with the man in the mask comes up here, they also get possession of something that he gave Ben, this thumb drive with all sorts of things that he is accusing Wilson Fisk of. So trying to make the connections here is the biggest obstacle our characters face. And you know what? Despite the fact that this is not uh, network TV and we can watch them as fast as we want, so on and so forth, it's also a scene to just kind of remind everybody where we're up to. Ben has recapped Leland is the money man. Fisk has his assistant, James Wesley. I believe that's the first time we hear first, the first time name. we've gotten his name. Yeah. Um, and then just as you mentioned, Pete, some of those connections that we're well aware of, you know, connections between Confederated Global and the Slumlords and all of that. It's it's okay to have a show that is 13 episodes long, occasionally stop and just have have an organic story moment to sit and say, all right, characters and audience, does everybody understand what's going on right now? Uh, and it's to their credit that they that they're not so arrogant that they're going to do a you know a 13 hour novel and not ever look back right and that they get to confederated uh global and then westmire holt and uh senor tully's name comes up everything there you know we're we're backtracking at the same time we're we're drawing connections here um, but that Ben knows this slumlord Tully and that Foggy brings in that Landman and Zach uh, told him he was on vacation on an island no one can pronounce where they use coconuts as phones. Um, it's another connection. You know, ben, ben is us as the viewer, you know, maybe a little bit more informed as a reporter, but functioning here as the audience it's just another connection in the wind if you can't corroborate this stuff if you can't connect it it's hearsay it doesn't count which is something that they've returned to a few times that these big bad guys are so big that they can't be touched but it's worth mentioning i mean you know i mean we won't go too too much into personal views or things in the news lately but you see that all the time whether you know, whatever label you want to put on the big dog you see it all the time where, oh, they're able to do that because they can do that. Who am I to stand up to them? And I, I I really enjoy that they're tapping into some kind of point of view and some kind of message in this otherwise fictional, fake, superpower, radar eyes show. The soul of this particular episode is the line that Matt Murdock as the masked man draws for himself, taking a life. Do you become the devil and trying to rid the world of the devil? And the conversation he has with the priest in the beginning of the episode gets that out there thematically. And here Ben says, says the line, you know, maybe the masked man knows that there's some roads you can't come back from. From there, we're at the waterfront with Wesley. And I got to say, I don't like that his full name is James Wesley because that means that Fisk is calling him just by his last name. And it sounds less friendly in retrospect when he's referred to him as Wesley. I agree with everything you say, except I like that Fisk does it. You know, like I like that there's that familiarity of the the coach to the player but it's also a good reminder that they're not on the same level 
and that Wesley is not like number two in the organization. He's Fisk's number two, which is really way down on the list of actual power, you know? I suppose. But amidst talk of latest poll numbers rising across political, ethnic, and economic uh, lines, the 501c3 charity that they've set up, and even requests from Senator Cherry's office for a meet uh, at breakfast. There's quite a bit going on in Fisk's world here. On the blueprints, it explicitly said West 52nd Street and 9th Avenue is new construction for a mixed-use residential um, hotel retail four-tower complex. So these um, plans that they have are extensive and that there's a PAC, a political action committee, even involved in actively taking donations. This is a far and wide-reaching scheme. But not so far, not so wide that that some of the finer details can't be directed by Fisk. Uh, I love it that there's this request from Senator Cherry's office to meet, and Fisk says, uh, breakfast, you know, let's meet for breakfast, but reject whatever the first spot is that they suggest. Again, I think in line with the with Fisk calling John Wesley Wesley, whatever it is that the presumably he's a you know a a, a national senator, you know, the Senator Cherry representing the entire state of New York wants to meet with you. Let's just say no to whatever he says the first time out. Then we'll say yes the second time to just send that message of of who's who and what's what. Definitely. When we get to the subject of Detective Hoffman and uh, his potential to speak to police here, um, we hear from Wesley that their sources at Internal Affairs um, noted he was supposed to give a follow-up statement, but he has not done that after what happened at Metro General Hospital. And Fisk is adamant that they need to put this behind them. I like that there is this loose thread that um, the Fisk empire with all its power hasn't been able to magically hammer down one way or the other, even including, you know, a, a shot to the back of the head. It's just another example of this problem that that Fisk's partners are noticing, which is he's not in control of things 100 percent the way they need him to be. And some of them are quite upset about it. The man in the mask. Yes. Also Nobu. <laughs> yes, the the other man in the mask. <laughs> so um, what we have here is the concern. Yes, the authorities are motivated to shoot the man in the mask on sight. But, um, you know, has he given up? Has he become more careful? Whatever it is. And then before we know it, the door opens and the other future man in the mask or maybe past because we saw him in the tease, but we still don't know it's him yet because that hasn't happened in the episode. <laughs> Nobu uh, comes in and um, he, uh, he twists a hand uh, placed on his shoulder by one of the uh, guards there. And uh, poor Francis uh, is allowed by Wesley to let him in here. And uh, Fisk at first is apologetic to Nobosan um, if he knew he was coming. And then Wesley translates 
that he doesn't care for the accommodations to which Nobu says in English to Wesley, misspeak my words again and I will have your tongue, which carries a little bit of weight after the fact. <laughs> Indeed it does. And I, I'm glad that we're, um, we're able to spend more time with Nobu in this scene. I mean, obviously in light of uh, where things are headed with him, but it, 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 he really is such a compelling character um, and one, as we've discussed in previous episodes, whose mystery has kind of been quietly simmering for a while as, uh, as some of the other uh, people in this uh, confederation of, of uh, evildoers you know, have been picked off and whatnot. It's kind of, you know, it's Nobu time and he's definitely up t- uh, for the task. As Fisk assures Nobu that Wesley is just trying to be polite, there's this great uh, body language moment there where Wesley smirks. And uh, Nobu tells him that the time for pleasantries is at an end. He was promised a city block in return for his aid in their ventures. And Fisk lays it out for him that there's a tenement in this particular area. And we know the one that he's speaking about that has proven troublesome to vacate. You can pick from another block uh, we have coming up and Nobu points to his target here. Fisk of course tells him he doesn't recall guaranteeing a specific block that he'll need to be patient, patient or choose another. But uh, Nobu tells him that he's bound by certain requirements even I have those he must answer to Uh, and after the setback at the docks he can afford no further disruptions that Fisk and his empire need to do what they must and do it quickly you know Pete with some of the lines like that I I, I had to remind myself that we are in the ninth of 13 episodes here um, just as I wonder how how deeply are are we going to go with his organization and some of the particulars here, Black Sky, uh, etc. I mean, we're kind of, you know, we're not running out of time, so to speak, but there are only, after this episode, uh, four episodes left. So we kind of need to get a move on with things in, in Hell's Kitchen and, uh, and the different relationships between people and what I assume would be a showdown between our, our top hero and our top villain and all of that. So I, I I like that there's this shadowy group with unanswered questions. I'm just worried we're going to have to wait until season two to find out more. Well, thank goodness we got a season two after only 11 days, Matt. It could be a lot worse. <laughs> this is very, very true. Very true. But uh, Nobu tells them that his organization will compensate them for the extra expense. Um, but Fisk tells him the offer is appreciated but unnecessary there's a problem that they could use Nobu's aid in solving. And in return for Fisk's help, uh, one that has inconvenienced them both. And they're talking here about the man in black, as Nobu calls him. Um, he's proven to be more difficult to address than expected. He's possessed of determination and unusual talents. And uh, they want his help in uh, taking care of this, a specialist perhaps from Nobu's organization. And wouldn't you know it, Matt, Mr. Nobu knows of one with such skills, but finding our enemy will be difficult. He has become cautious. 
And I mean, the, the show does a very nice job hiding that reveal. I certainly didn't see it coming. Um, and uh, you just kind of figure, oh, well, his whole organization is shadowy. We saw the kind of, you know, red ninja guy. They're going to get somebody. That's that's where things are. That's where things are uh, are headed. Um, and then, of course, there is this uh, great kind of story uh, point being floated out there. Well, how do we coax him out there? And I think that that too is something that is not completely uh, clear as it's unfolding uh, a bit later in the episode. That there's actually a straight line between this scene and much of what follows. Yes, that emotion. Uh, can turn the most circumspective men careless. Wouldn't you know from there, we go to Nelson and Murdoch, where uh, Foggy is uh, talking to Karen, and Armand Tully is a dead end. Matt comes in, and he wants to know if you found found something out. Uh, Foggy tells him here that he's done a little back channeling. These Netflix shows love their back channeling, Matt. Uh, <laughs> with Marcy at Lambin and Zach and uh, Karen with the great ooh, well, what did you get? That uh, Tully really is on an island he bought with money from Confed Global um, for the tenement cases here. And uh, there is that update that um, Tully has recently sold the building. So if Tully, which which cements the fact that Tully is at least the now perceived bad guy of all of this, because sure it's a Fisk building now, but it just got sold. I think they said yesterday, two days ago, something like that. So G. Willikers, how could it be Fisk? He just he just bought it. It's that Tully guy who once again is on the island that he bought. And Pete, can they extradite him? No extradition agreement, Matthew. So it's just all tied up. Uh, I mean, at least in in TV law terms, all tied up. There's no getting Tully. There's no pinning it on Fisk, um, at least as things stand now. Well, they must speak Spanish on this island because uh, buenos dias. Hola, señora Cardenas. ¿Dónde está la biblioteca? He's always studying that foggy he is and we get the translation here uh it it dawns and going back over this that this is the last time we see poor uh mrs cardenas alive so it takes on a completely different note in retrospect but they've doubled the offer to get her out of the tenants some of her neighbors are thinking about it and uh matt is the voice of reason. He says, maybe they should. And Foggy tells them to tell her to stand firm. We told her that they would help. And uh, that's what they're going to do. Mrs. C says, oh, such a good boy in English here. And um, the Karen translates. She thinks that they can change some of their minds here, that it's enough of them to make a difference and Mrs. Cardenas says she will no-take, this is my home, and they will fight this sea. Which is all, uh, how should I put this, all of that scene is realistic. None of it, it comes across as soap opera-y or willful suspension or anything like that. But I found myself completely on Matt's side here, um, and I don't recall the 
dollar amount mentioned initially, which was never was how much never was never was. Okay. But I mean, here's my point. Double is all we know. Yeah. I mean, double is all we know. And I really have to think that, yes, we know that this is a story mechanism by which she says no, ends up dead, brings out the masked man. And that was Fisk's plan all along. Fisk also believes in backups. And here's another solution to the problem. Offer everybody enough money to get out and it's it, it's you know pennies falling off the table for his operation and problem solved um and i kind of felt like here foggy is so eager to to be sawyer and to solve it using his newly minted tools of of you know law license and legal office that that regardless of you know the mysterious fisk empire and the fact that guys were sent to get the people out and all that it's like take the money and go do blank and i know that real estate in manhattan is is vicious and impossible so perhaps perhaps there are people listening going hello she's in a rent controlled place once she leaves that's it she's done they want to give her five hundred thousand dollars that'll get scooped up before she's old enough to you know you know go die whatever it might be you know it's there's just no way no how but it was just kind of like take the money and and foggy is foggy's saying let's fight for the good fight and matt's saying let's take what is practical and i was totally on his side here even before i knew she you know and by the time that she leaves when matt is explaining this to foggy that he shouldn't have done that that you know uh what fight for their rights you know this is about the little guy this is what we do we're not supposed to roll over uh karen chimes in here but uh you know fisk is public on this and uh they want to tie him up with an injunction or something like that which matt again has to appeal to foggy's common sense that that's not going to happen Again, Pete, I don't mean to speak out against Foggy, who, you know, is the the audience in so many ways, um, certainly the the ignorant audience, you know, like if we didn't know about the true nature of the masked man, then we, too, would be fearful and calling him a terrorist without a, you know, terrorism without an ism, that kind of thing. Uh, but it really is the height of his ignorance or at the very least uh, the the height of his being charged up over this that that they think at all that these two lawyers can go toe to toe with fisk and his presumed army of lawyers or confederated globals army of lawyers where an injunction is going to do much of anything yeah and <clears throat> you know for matt to quote the first tenant here of law and war um you know, know your enemy and foggy, of course, to, you know, bitterly slap them with the Sun Tzu, you know, what do we do here that they keep digging that, uh, somewhere out there, there's got to be a piece of paper or a witness or something that will lead them to the truth, but they've got to do it quietly. They've got to do it under the radar. So Matt decides to go see Fisk's girlfriend. Uh, totally under the radar completely completely and when he arrives there we can see that she's under the radar because there are security guys all over the place and by the way great use of the set and i regret not having the director's name in front of me at the moment but as an art gallery would have there are different you know 
pieces of wall jutting out so you have more wall space to hang you know art but there's this great shot where she's all the way over to the right separated from the view of the entrance the little lobby area the foyer um and he's he's preparing to walk in you can see him through the glass door she's inside in another section and it's all one shot it's just well, as you mentioned, Pete, before they even start doing close-ups to really make it clear that there's multiple security guys there, it's, you know, her resplendent and lovely and white, a couple of guys standing around not looking at art, and then Matt all the way over on the left side of the screen preparing to enter. Just a really nice camera setup there. And we get this nice, playful, while we know the, the heavier aspect of it, of, you know, Matt probing i'm looking for art i i've been told my my place needs some sprucing up oh were these women are you hitting on me matthew well what would you know your significant other say and then boom why don't you ask him yourself and the panic that he feels i think is panic that we feel because there there's no setup there's no you know what I got a, what was it for the movie? You know, I scored a ticket to the white, the black tie, white coat affair thing. Right. And I, we're going to see him there. And it's going to be, we entered him. This is just, oh my goodness. I just kind of wandered on in here. And, oh, if this goes as deep as I think it does, he may actually know my name because he hired us uh, by way of Wesley for the, um, you know, the, the, the bowling alley murder. And all of a sudden, his world is very, very small. There's this great slow motion as he's entering. And then there's a shot from below of uh, Matt clenching his fist, almost as if he would act here, given his discussion earlier with the priest and the idea he might prevent this sadness. And again, in retrospect, Mrs. Cardenas doesn't die if Matt chooses here to make a stand. An excellent observation and and one of increasing uh, importance, I think, as these episodes are, are picking a pace towards the end of this, this first season storyline. What is the proper action and, and how do you do what is the best good? There's a great early exchange in this conversation where you know Vanessa says oh we were just about talking uh we were just talking about you with his preference in art and Fisk says to Matt I see you're blind I see is the uh, uh, really the the subtext there on top of the the metaphorical idea but um you know, they're familiar with one another because of what uh, Matt is doing in court, what he's initiated towards um, Fisk, that they probably really shouldn't be talking because they're on opposite sides of this tenancy case. Yeah, with that, uh, Fisk, you know, uh, goes into this uh, speech here about wanting to bring the city and Hell's Kitchen to its fullest potential. Uh, I love that Vanessa kind of pulls him back from the hard yep. sell, um, really being a, being a partner there and how he's presenting himself to to these different people in the city now that he is public. And from a story point of view, I love that Matt then just kind of ups and leaves. And it's with 
uh, I don't even have it written down, but it's with like the most meager of excuses, like, oh, I need to consider the price. Well, the cost. He's, there, the, there's the cost, one yeah. thing before that, though, where, you know, we get the motivation of both of our characters and it's the same as we've heard all along, but to hear them say it to one another, you know, Fisk wants Hell's Kitchen to its fullest potential. That's very important to him. And Matt tells him, I feel the same way. So to do this in front of Vanessa, not as if they're both vying for her, it's not even a contest, but if she's, you know, a representative of this city, it's an interesting dichotomy to set up. Absolutely. And, and, and as I said, just the fact that he quick gets out of there, you know, mentioning, mentioning the cost, which is something that had not been discussed. So it's kind of like, you know, the old, we're going to go test drive cars and pretend we have the money game. Um, and just the fact that the fact that he leaves so quickly, I mean, I like seeing a hero who's down and out, despite the fact that we have a fight scene in a little while where he's <laughs> close to the literal down and the literal out. Right. Where do you go after a conversation with the heavy in the show that you couldn't confront Matt? You go to church and the amen. Cru- yeah. Amen. The, uh, the crucifix there with the, uh, Jesus arms widespread and uh, Father is sitting in church, and he says that uh, he likes to have a moment at the end of the day, just me and him, Jesus there he's referring to. But it might as well refer to the previous scene, the moment between Matt Murdock and Fisk, that moment they shared and didn't come across ominous of a moment to come. I... I had a slightly different take on the scene, although I don't I don't disagree with you. I just I, I I gravitated towards this notion that after a busy day of trying to save people and trying to help people, the priest likes to take time where, uh, at least in his mind, all those people are closed out, and it's an opportunity to get back to the central his central relationship with Jesus or the central kind of uh, importance of, of himself reflecting on himself, that kind of thing. But just this notion of closing the door. And again, I don't mean the literal church door, but closing the door to everybody else to focus on, to focus on the thing that drives him the most. Oh, I had no intentions of saying otherwise, but that we've just come from the moment before and you pair it up with this one. That's a completely intentional decision as a writer and absolutely they want the again dichotomy of here's mortal man with his savior here's you know much weaker man grasping at straws to try to bring down this devil and to hold them in contrast is highly effective um matt wants to know if this priest can put in a word here and uh, he wants to know, the priest does, how did he know that he was sitting there? And Matt asks him if he wants the long version or the short version. Indeed, a reference to uh, their, their earlier conversation. Um, and uh, things quickly uh, turn to them talking about uh, visiting someone close to the devil. Um, interesting that it's kind of taken on that tone. Um, perhaps as Matt needs justification for what he's doing and, you know, to bring a line from the, from the pilot episode, what he will do, um, 
we as the audience are much less willing to characterize Fisk as the, you know, red horned devil of all that is evil. Um, but Matt sure needs that. He needs that devil of everything. So whatever he does must be good because he's fighting the, the worst bad there ever was. Right. And for him to visit Vanessa and to unexpectedly run into Fisk and learn that he has somebody he's close to and who loves him, who would mourn him if he was lost. And the priest here, we get a name for the first time. This is Father Lantum. He says, you know, if you think about even Lucifer, um, you know, was an angel. Uh, that it's why judgment and vengeance are best left to God, especially when murder is not in your heart. Which is is a great reminder here for him. I mean, it's it's you know this idea that there is someone who would mourn Fisk's loss. It didn't even occur to Matt that this that 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 such a person would uh, would exist for for Fisk. Um, there's a quick interruption where he ignores a call from Foggy, and then then we kind of get into even more religious discussion here. Can you know what are the merits of knowing that you are damning your soul uh, by taking Fisk's life? Which uh, I found interesting as a non-Catholic. I think on the Protestant Protestant end, you're a little bit more willing to consider uh, loopholes or exceptions to that which is cut and dry, um, and the notion of saying. Um, saying, if I take Fisk's life, I know, or at least I believe, as as Matt Murdock would would say, that this will cause great and objective good to many, many, many people for many, many years to come. But I will damn my soul to hell for taking his life. I mean, my goodness, what a what a decision to have in front of you! Right, quoting Proverbs twenty five something. <laughs> like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is the righteous man who gives way before the wicked. And there's this idea of other people being drawn into this and succumbing to sin that, you know, it's as if a public well were poisoned because the darkness of such an act of taking a life will spread to friends, neighbors, the entire community. And we're, you know, we're on the precipice of seeing that that impact these other characters. I appreciate that the show is doing this type of reflection, which I get to large degree is from the source material and the the central uh, dichotomy of Daredevil as you know of the law by day and and vigilante by night. Then you add the Catholic view to it all, but I I mean comic book show or not it's rare to have these kinds of discussions where you say what is the greater good and if you start saying that this behavior is the greater good can it can it poison the well of a community it's 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 extremely appropriate it feels extremely appropriate now in this day and age in 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 the last couple years whatever you want to you know, last couple of months, whatever time frame you want to put on it. But I suspect it's it's probably a universal truth that will carry for some time. Matt enters the office and we get an understanding quickly from the dialogue that it is the next day. Karen points out that Foggy tried to get a hold of him last night and Matt admits he turned off his phone. 
Um, they want to know if he's okay. And uh, the news that Foggy and Karen have is that they have gotten off the uh, contractor's licenses the names of the two guys who jumped them outside of Elena Cardenas's. This would be a Stuart Schmidt and a Joseph Pike. Um, and they're discussing their connections there. Uh, to Westmeyer Holtz contracting, another wonderful uh, global confed subsidiary, and everything that they're able to do there. They've reached out to Ben. They're off the map, just like Tully. Uh, so, of course, that would seem to be a dead end. They don't have anything. Um, but then show them the thing, and um, Nelson and Murdoch now has this Nice little plaque that they can hang outside, you know, really kind of a nice character moment for them as a practice that this is coming along. Um, but things don't exactly last long there, Matt, do they? No, they don't. And a bit of irony that now that you have this this uh, physical and metaphorical sign of how how successful the practice is, some of it, uh, some of the sign that is to say presumably paid for by uh whatever meager offerings mrs cardenas could could give i know it was paid in food but you know the, the notion that she as a client helped move this practice forward then they get the the sad call which is uh teased out a bit but but certainly certainly um uh, a blow to we the audience i don't think i don't think there were tears in anyone's eyes on the on the you know audience end but a blow nonetheless that mrs cardenas is dead Right. We go from the phone call here to the sheet being lifted and they are identifying her in the morgue with uh, Sergeant Brett Mahoney of the 15th precinct here. And then a neighbor had seen some junkie who uh, has been around the building fleeing the scene with her pocketbook um, that she was probably fishing for her keys and that she was uh, the recipient of multiple stab wounds here. So apart from the gash over her left eye suffered in the um, explosion at the end of the fifth episode, that uh, this poor woman was um, really butchered at the end of her life. And this becomes real for them in a way – you know, forget the fear and the intimidation that's been placed on them, but for this little old lady to have been killed, this is almost a bridge too far for our characters. And the acting here on the part of Deborah Ann Wall and Eldon Henson, it, it really sells the sorrow that these characters are feeling. And it's just, you know they're falling apart like she was family and to be fair they ate in her kitchen they they ate her food they helped her patch her apartment up and it, it just kind of carries this central small tragedy that is nonetheless heartbreaking yeah and to pull this back and to make this the thing that helps them to you know, get the idea of Matt and the devil to push Foggy to really the the point he's never been that somebody's life has been lost now over this case 
it's really what had to come out of this character. And from this portion of the story that I don't think felt slow, but probably when they're sitting in the editor's room or booth or whatever they call it, probably the editor spoke up and said, hey, we got to like jack this thing back up again for some pacing here. Um, With that, we cut to the masked man and the red ninja fighting. Right. And, uh, you know, the spear um, on a chain pierces a barrel, which begins to to leak. Um, The masked man kicks him down and we get the reveal that it's Nobu. And he tells him, you're a worthy opponent. It's an honor to claim your life. Um, And that uh, he attacks again, catches him, pulls him floor. And we get the quick cut back to where we were in the story. And they're in Josie's bar. And and this is wake, Matt, as Foggy will refer to it. Yeah, and just, I mean, to refer back to that previous scene for a brief moment, to see him, to see the masked man pulled by that that curved uh, hook-type uh, weapon, I mean, you just kind of immediately go, oh my goodness, that's pulling on his bone and his muscle. And it's just, it's 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 an awful moment, with which again is highlighting the fact he's losing this fight big time, and we don't know yet how it started. You know, that that's part of the conceit of having this... Uh, you know, and medias rest opening where we're, we're headed towards the middle of the story here. Um, but then, as you say, yes, back to the back to the bar wake for Mrs. C. And it's here that they also um, come across Fisk through the TV. Uh, you can see while the TV is muted, it says tenement death sparks outrage. So this is engulfed the city. And uh, then they... Uh, increase the volume for Fisk to give this very impassioned speech with a guard to his right and Wesley to his left that, uh, you know, he recently owns up to having taken possession of these homes and uh, that uh, they offered a substantial sum to Ms. Cardenas, who he later refers to as Mrs. in the same scenes, just a little bit of a continuity error. I don't think it's meant to – he was so in the moment that he gave her the wrong courtesy title at one point. But, uh, you know, his thesis in this impromptu press conference, uh, Fisk, is that uh, these people should not be uh, swallowed up by the city, that he mourns this woman's death, that it didn't have to happen, that, uh, you know, her passing is a – symptom of a much larger disease that infects us all and in that he's calling out those who hide in the shadows and that's that's the moment where we in the audience go oh this is how they're 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 turning this into a message to one person because they want to get the masked man on the case here right and you know you could not throw it away as a throwaway line here. But one of the reporters asks quickly as the press conference is breaking down, Mr. Fisk, how does this affect the upcoming benefit? So we're seeding story down the line. No more questions are taken. And then another one asks, you know, what can we do about this psycho that we know is, uh, already in the offing. But, uh, you know, Karen is particularly upset 
in light of this with everything that she knows about the masked man and what Fisk has done and the half of the force probably in um, his pocket that uh, she's just hoping that the mask gets his hands on him and knocks his GD head off. <laughs> Pete, is that the first GD? Have you been keeping count of that or did, did, does that not get the same <laughs> treatment as the S word? In this episode, it's the first <laughs> GD. Fair enough. Fair I, enough. I did not call attention to our first S word in this episode, our 38th in the series. But trust me, oh, 38 and 39 will get their fair mention. There is also discussion there uh, between Matt and Karen about uh, religion. And I love her response. He asks her if she's religious. Her response, my parents were probably why I'm not just a really excellent line and you know we we've gotten background on a bunch of different characters here uh a whisper in the wind told me that we'll get some more background on on a couple uh couple characters that we hold near and dear in coming episodes there's definitely a an air of mystery um that we met Karen with and that she then kept from her two employers um, and then that you know went away once Ben was uh, introduced to to right. to their knowledge and all that. A little suggestion here: Hey, there's still some some mystery, or at the very least, it's two sentences that give you a wonderful snapshot into her background. Right, and you know, speaking of mystery, to get Matt back in his apartment, he opens up the uh, closet. There's a trunk. W- what could be in it? opens it up and it's his father's battling Jack uh, red robe. And then beneath it, of course, is where Matt keeps his gear. And I loved kind of the back and forth there where it's like, uh, uh, it's a, it's, it's a large green trunk. That's where he can, can be where he keeps the stuff. And then, no, it's not. It's his father's things. And you go, Oh, okay. Well, a little bit of misdirect there. And then, no, that's actually where it is. I just love, I love that from a, from uh, just, you know, kind of toying with the audience and also just the psychological implication that his father's fighting tools hide his own fighting tools and they are both fighters and all of that stuff. Right. And, you know, he blesses himself and then he is suddenly beating a guy in the street. Um, A number of uh, squares fall out, which uh, it wasn't immediately apparent that these uh, were drugs. Uh, drug bundles or wax folds and then a switchblade by the man he's attacking he gets him to look at the symbol and he wants to know uh, where is he and uh, the guy doesn't know there's screaming and uh, he'll tell him where to where to look if you please stop hurting me from there we are in uh, a crack den or something like it there's a bearded man shooting up and dropping the syringe and I love the the in-world writing that uh, the masked man appears and that this guy uh, thinks that it's a, a drug-induced hallucination. This whole this whole bit where he's looking to find this this junkie, um, and, and then the reveal of the junkie it's it's so kind of well put together. The fact that he goes through three people to get to this junkie but the beating of those three people gets edited together as one kind of continuous scene where we're kind of not clear because he's just busting heads 
that's fantastic. And then, yeah, to just show this this guy with a needle in his arm that can't function um, is is so pathetic. And I would even argue that as the scene goes on, we feel even more sympathy for this guy, despite the fact that he's he's done such such bad things. The junkie I'm talking about, let alone from Matt, who does does his own bad things as well. Right. And, you know, he tells him the junkie does that he's sick and Matt is really not going to take that apart from having the lie detector uh, with the heart and, and doesn't fall for some of the fake answers. But he throws this guy around and ultimately tells him you're going to go down to the 15th precinct and turn yourself into Sergeant Brett Mahoney. It's there that he sent to the waterfront where he was recruited, the, um, the junkie there. And uh, Matt goes in. There's the space where we've seen the fight take place before. So we know we finally arrived to that in the real time of the episode. The table with the blueprints takes his glove off and he feels uh, some of the text. There was the acronym, I believe, K-R-U-M-A, Hell's Kitchen Redevelopment Plan. 12th Avenue and 56th Street were... uh, some of the streets visible and then the heartbeat starts very low but intensifying steadily and then we get the showdown discussion here uh the masked man says that he didn't come there for him and nobu says but i am the one you have found he jumps down there in a look like an empty closet or space he's got the mask on and uh, Matt tells him, uh, you were at the docks with the boy. Nobu says, as were you with the old fool who is name checked a couple times. We're referring, of course, to the character of Stick. And the masked man makes it plain he is not part of his war. But Nobu points out that you aided him anyway. And you've caused me displeasure in that act. There's also uh, Matt sharing with Nobu that that Matt recognizes that Nobu slowed his heart and lowered his body temperature. And really interesting response from Nobu uh, that the old man has taught Matt, quote, our ways. Right. Um, Suggesting, again, a very, very uh, small world, closed circle, et cetera, between the two. Yes. And uh, so Nobu ultimately tells him, you're still a warrior, deserving of a warrior's death but the masked man says he's there for fisk he'd have to settle instead for you they fight with the sticks there and uh it it gets a little hairy matt it does but i appreciate that since we know how poorly matt will end up doing at least in in the lowest point of the fight um i like that it starts out kind of so um elegantly you know uh, nobu kind of with throwing knives and matt batting them out of the air and it looks so even keeled uh and then we see for now chronologically the first time matt slipping up getting hit and then we are quickly at the uh at the point where we were at the beginning of the episode i love that we move from a punch uh to uh foggy knocking over the bottle in josie's bar uh, we get our 39th S word of the series, second of the episode, and uh, he wants another bottle over there. 
because this is a wake. And uh, you know why people drink so much at a wake, Matt? Because it sucks. There is something about Foggy in this episode that does not make me dislike him for good, but there's something that's there's kind of like like an edge to him that makes me say, you know, this this guy is a little full of himself, which is probably not news. We've seen a little of the, you know, let me whip out the butcher story for the latest lady. Um, but here it's just kind of like we have to drink because we're supposed to drink because it's so awful. I don't know there's just something that's a little um Again, I'm not trying to be critical of the show, the actor, the writing, none of that. I'm trying to be critical of the guy of Foggy, that he's a little full of it at times. Right. And, you know, he talks about Hell's Kitchen being a real asshole, 40, when he grew up. But, you know, that there was a heart. They knew people that they got their law degrees so that they could use the law and play by the rules. And they were going to help people they grew up with. And now there's a human cost to that um you know that these uh big boys like fisk that it's all bull s 41 that uh it's all lies uh to make it through one more day and uh you know he 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 just can't go on and uh you know it's a scene that needs to happen where karen tells him that the only thing you can do uh, is what you're supposed to do against someone who owns everyone and everything. Let's note that yet again, Karen is kind of the spark in someone else's engine. They're ready to putter out and she's the one kind of redirecting them. Um, we saw it with how, with how voracious she was with Ben um, a couple of episodes ago. We're seeing it here now where she's just saying, you know, Let's not just stick with a law office that helps people. We need to make the bad people pay. And uh, she really is kind of an inciting force in that regard. Well, we redheads have that effect on people. We cut back to Nobu dragging the masked man. He uh, is then kicked into the wall where the liquid is trickling. And, uh, you know, Nobu, the slight monologue here, you fought well. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, not going to go his way. And then we have the sparks from the light that he catches fire after his, uh, his weapon is deflected there that even burning, uh, they fight (laughs) until he finally falls down and Fisk comes in something I certainly did see coming to thank him the masked man, that Nobu was becoming an issue and that he appreciates uh, the masked man for removing him uh, from concern. Those guy-on-fire practical effects shots, I mean, look, we've all seen tons of movies where they do guy-on-fire, you know? This This was with a brightness to the fire and fine, it's in slow motion, but a duration of shot that I feel like is so rare. I feel like most of the times when you see somebody on fire in a TV show or movie, it's just long enough to the point that you know as soon as they yelled cut, there was you know the guys with uh, fire extinguishers ready to run in, as I'm sure was the case on Daredevil. But I'm just kind of watching this saying, they're using a really wide shot. This guy is really burning up. Like 
<laughs> yeah, you kind of fear for the fear for the stunt guy here, but just a a a, a practical effect the likes of which uh, I, I've seen attempted before, but never seen executed so well. And then Pete, as you mentioned, on top of that, just the shock that this has been a show for Fisk and Company, and now that's kind of gone the wrong way. Okay, on to the next solution. Right, you know, uh, the masked man asks him, "You wanted me to do this," and Fisk tells him, "You know, in a in a perfect world, you would have taken each other out, but it's not this perfect world, is it?" Uh, Wes and a and a guard are with him as well. We realize at this point, and uh, you know, to be honest, it took longer than expected. Uh, Fisk tells him, but uh, you know. Nobu didn't mind. He could meditate for hours and, uh, you know, that they had this conflict here. Fisk tells him his mind won't let him quiet it, that it's a character flaw. They all have them. You, for instance, masked man, demonstrate an emotional weakness for women and children. And he assumed it extended to the elderly. So he baited the hook. And here you are. And I mean, how can you argue with the with the the totality of this perfectly planned uh, plot that Fisk has put together? It's worked, maybe with the minor exception of Nobu didn't kill uh, didn't kill uh, the masked man. But here, uh, certainly, the fact that Wesley and the guard both have guns, you know, it's it's uh, quite clear. One would think that he's now about to get shot, but instead. Um, you know, Matt says that he's going to kill Fisk. And right. to me, it kind of felt like a prediction because I'm just saying not for nothing. Um, I, I doubt that's about to happen in this scene, in this episode. Um, when Fisk tells him to take the shot, we just have we have this giant kingpin able to take the punch and give back more. And it's it's the powerful kingpin from the film, the comics, um, realized now, particularly, you know, the one in the comics is kind of, you know, comic book sized in his you know in his girth and his muscles and all of that but i mean it's just so punishing the, the the beating that he gives the masked man here right and even using nobu's weapon you know slashing the suit it's it's the only thing he can do and um fisk just pummels him he throws him into the table before you know using the handkerchief there very elegantly to clean himself off. He says that, you know, um, this was disappointing and Wesley cocks the gun. The masked man throws, uh, something at him there. I thought it was a pipe or just another piece of debris, uh, to deflect the gun and, uh, jumps out of the window into the water. And, uh, you know, Fisk tells them that, uh, you're going to post guards on the dock if they see the mask to put a bullet in him. What about Nobu? Let him burn. I really appreciated that um, Fisk didn't kind of react like stereotypical bad guy of, you know, oh, you let him get away and yell at Wesley, who we know isn't going to get killed off because the masked man just, you know, outsmarted him at the last second. Uh, similarly, it's not like quite frankly, the movie uh, Kingpin, who then, I'm going to kill a guard because I'm angry. It's just, what is killing somebody around you going to do because you just lost? Nothing. Maybe they'll make it up to you later on, or at the very least, why cause all this trouble to to 
make anybody more aware that you just didn't have happen what you what you wanted and um i just like that he he gets himself composed there's that there's that rip in his uh in his jacket i think uh, we're meant to assume that the protective clothing once again has saved him and um with that the search is on for the masked man well the search too for matt murdoch because foggy in his uh inebriated state is pounding on his door he needs to talk to him uh that they need to keep going that they're going to nail that bastard fisk to the wall and make him pay for elena for everything um he hears a crash he's able to get in going through upstairs and uh points out that the crash he heard was not the fun sexy time one but more of the i've fallen and i can't get up kind or variety as he says but uh grabbing the uh i thought it was a baseball bat but then i saw him prod him with a cane uh with matt's cane um he sees the masked man gasping he falls down here uh, he goes to call 911. It rings a couple times. He stops. And then curiosity gets the best of old Foggy. He pulls back the mask. Matt? <laughs> I I um, read into the scene that it wasn't just curiosity. It was kind of some sort of um, subconscious recognition and, you know, the back of his brain telling the front part uh, – you recognize this, don't you? You have to take a look because you've just figured this out. You just, you, you know, on some level, and, and now you need the rest of you to figure it out. But indeed, with that, the masked man masked no more to his friend. The end. Jackson, you're already badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? And Pete, just as in the world of Daredevil, it is uh, it is September, heading towards fall. They need that heat in the kitchen to uh, to keep things going. Want to uh, remind everybody: if you'd like to help us keep things going on the podcast, you can head over to Patreon.com/slash Fantastic Geek. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/slash Fantastic Geek to uh, lend a hand, come together as a community remembering mrs cardenas and uh and uh, help us with those uh bandwidth and storage costs that bring this from our microphones into your computer speakers headphones etc but with that pete you know who isn't going to be listening to the podcast anymore that's mr nobu because he's dead yes the character i affectionately refer to as red ninja before we know him as mr nobu who knew no boo could do like he do in this episode i bet that no boo's boo knew no boo <laughs> could do that wow um you know it's it's an effective reveal you don't see it coming not certainly that you know a bad guy couldn't defend himself but when you know you refer to a specialist in the third person and then bam there he is when it seems Fisk knew all along it would be Nobu, you just wonder why they can't have an open conversation there and we just don't reveal it that, oh, oh, you're the specialist and you're going to take care of it. Right. Okay. Huh, that's interesting. I kind of read it as 
Fisk figured it out at that moment and was like, okay, cool, if we get to take out two people, uh, so be it. Although it, there, it probably is also suggestive that, that he had an inkling. Um, I just think these people, Pete, they're so used to living in the shadows that um, even with your special heroin real estate um, murder friends, you, surprisingly, <laughs> you don't share a whole lot. Wow. <laughs> um, okay, so from that, let's talk about Fisk with his heroin real estate murder friends and, you know, his special suits that he's now gone through two of from Mr. Potter and, um, you know, these machinations of this big, huge real estate game and the blood on his hands from hiring this junkie to not only take uh, Miss Cardenas's purse, but her life. Pete, here's the thing. I buy the sorrow that he shares uh, during the news conference, the impromptu news conference. I really genuinely believe that he does take some pain in the fact that these people are dying or these people are hurt. Um, I don't think it's as much pain as perhaps he, he showed in the news conference in the way where you open up the newspaper and say, oh, what a shame, so so nice, so young, so whatever where you know we, we have that moment of grief. Um, I think he feels that too, but he is just uh, looking at, you know, the uh, he's not concerned about his own soul being damned while he does these bad things for a greater good. So he's just able to let the grief in, feel it, say, my goodness, what a shame, she looks like a sweet lady, and then drop it and move on. Despite the beatdown at the end of the episode, his most revealing scene in this episode is when he comes across Matt at the art gallery with Vanessa. And just the the way that he interacts with him is kind of a little bit of a, you know, of, of a C-block vibe, like, hey, you know, this is also the woman I'm with. You're a handsome guy. You're here under the auspices, although he doesn't know it from Vanessa, of buying, you know, art for the, you know, hot women you bring back, uh, you know, to feel their faces. Um, you know, that for me was the more villainy of the scenes here it's easy for the big strong guy to pound on the hero. It's easy for the bad guy to even feign this people dying, uh, you know, let's all rally, but to be face to face with the hero and to have that tension, that's really where he reveals who he is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another revealing moment was when uh, Wesley is tasked with shooting uh, the masked man. We have not seen Wesley get his hands particularly dirty. In fact, when uh, when uh, Fisk beat the Russian to death a number of episodes ago, uh, Wesley was kind of the first one to kind of you know look away or or um, not be completely reviled by it. But certainly, the, it's been suggested that that level of getting your hands dirty um, is not something that is part of his world normally. And now here, the boss has said, you do the deed. 
Yeah. And um, like I said, that he gets a first name here. I'm not wild about it, but to see him as a little bit more of a man of action helps you to understand why he's so trusted by Fisk that he not only can, you know, arrange things, but he can take care of things himself when need be that he is somebody to uh, be feared. You know, I, I think back to the episode in the bowling alley when he retrieves the handgun that uh, Healy had stashed under the pinball machine. And there's that great moment where he pulls the quarter out and says, I got next when, you know, he could probably wreck the two teenagers who, you know, are, are playing on this pinball machine. Indeed, he's definitely uh, a man of mind, not always a man of action. And here uh, doesn't exactly uh, do a great job as a man of action. Your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench? It's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. So, Pete, what's your thought here on my my pet theory that we're, we have some Karen reveals ahead of us, that she's more than kind of a mechanism through which the the particulars of the story are flowing through, that she's perhaps even more than just an inciting force saying, come on, keep going, that that maybe there's maybe there's some uh, shocking background to her. Has to happen, particularly in light of the, you know, my parents were religious, maybe that's why I'm not admission. It's a great, great line. It, Here's it, another it, one for you, Pete. What if anything will we see of uh of nobu's operation or rather should i say what effect will nobu's death have on this increasingly rickety uh confederation of bad guys here and will there be retribution for his loss well if you look at a 13 episode season like we have here in pieces and you reflect back that we had the russian portion through the first five episodes and now we had the you know episodes uh from there up through nine here that really kind of covered the uh japanese portion of this syndicate i fully expect that the attention is going to shift to gao's operation and that's the one i think is the most interesting you know these blind people that are uh you know, packaging the drugs. We've not come back to what is the impetus behind all of that. And I think that's far more shadowy. Say what you want about the black sky. I think we've, we've hit a story point to that, that we can certainly return to, but I don't see it happening without Nobu, at least for the immediate future. Again, as I said earlier, we're kind of, quickly running out of story road if you want to wrap up all these people's stories and wrap up the central conflict with Fisk and whatnot. So uh, it, it'll be interesting. Pete, do you have any wild and wacky theories? I have to be very careful with what I float here. And given what we've talked about, I feel good in the context of this episode. I don't have anything more to theorize about right now. Spoiler free as always. Excellent.
we've been using our enhanced senses to monitor of the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Matt, we will begin on Facebook um, and we'll share in a little bit where you can uh, get on there and like us and, and be part of the conversation. But we received a communique on uh, April 20th from Laura James and she writes, Hey, Matt and Pete, just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying your Daredevil podcast. I'm listening to quite a few podcasts related to the series, and yours is by far and away the most in-depth, considered, and enjoyable of them all. I think I've watched the entire 13-episode season through twice now, and listening to your comments and recap is ensuring I still find new things to admire about it. Also, listen to your Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, too. Keep up the good work. Smiley face emoticon, Laura from London, UK. Well, thank you very, very much, Laura. And it, it is nice to hear beyond the, beyond the compliment, of course. You know, we spend a lot of time asking ourselves what is the best way to podcast a show where potentially we are releasing our, you know, third episode on a day when you've watched all 13 uh what is the re-listenability first time spoiler free nature like how does that work and the, the fact that uh the fact that laura is enjoying it so much uh, tells us i mean frankly that's all i need to know if if laura in london is enjoying it then 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 it's working <laughs> well pete laura stepped forth from the 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 shadowy fog of london to get in touch with us on facebook how can other people do that well if you get yourself to facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek all one word with the ph like our page and you can then either uh, comment on one of our posts or you can make a post to our page which uh, we will interact with and uh, maybe even read on if not this podcast referencing daredevil possibly one of the others agents of shield uh potentially agent carter with some uh hullabaloo about a uh, possible 11th hour pickup there you never know absolutely and pete you are you are beloved around the world not just on facebook but also on twitter so how can people be in touch with you there you can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, -E 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 5,704 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, uh, you can be in touch with the podcast in a variety of ways where we are Fantastic Geek, that's with uh, Fantastic with a PH, on our .com, our Gmail, and uh, most immediate of all, the Twitter. So that, Pete, we put another episode of Daredevil to bed. We'll be back uh, to discuss Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. midweek and then hit Daredevil 110 uh, this upcoming Friday. Can't believe that we are uh, we're ebbing closer and closer to, uh, to the end of Daredevil here, at least the end of uh, Season 1. So with that, I will say sayonara to all our listeners and give you, Pete, the final word. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs>